In Numbers 1, or Numbers 11, verse 1 through 3, we get a quick little story about how as they're being led along the way, the people have this complaint in, in Numbers 11. And they complain, and God hears it, and they're complaining about some of the things that they feel have been misfortune, some of the, the, the trouble that they've encountered. Now, if you actually read everything from Exodus to Numbers, they have encountered some tall tasks. They've definitely encountered what might be softly put as inconveniences, right? I mean, it's a really big deal to, to be rooted out of the place that you've been and your families have been for several hundred years and to be plucked out and then now be kind of nomadic, right? Now, when, you, when we look at it, we say, well, it should be better, right? They're not slaves anymore, and God's taken them somewhere better where they can be their own people and they can have God as their leader. But to be fair, the day-to-day was probably difficult, right? To wander, to follow, to not know exactly where it is you're going because no one you've ever known has ever been there, Right? But think about this. Some of the things that we don't know from Numbers 11 is that God is miraculously feeding them. God is miraculously leading the way with this fire, this cloud. God is miraculously not even allowing their sandals and their feet to wear out as they travel. Um, God is taking them away that really nobody is standing between them and where they're going. He specifically did that. God is providing or provisioning a lot for these people that although they encountered inconveniences and troubles and difficulties, they didn't encounter nearly as many as they should have or could have, right? And so when you read Numbers 11, with that in mind, you think, what misfortunes are they counting, right? I don't know. I don't know specifically what they might have been thinking about. But at the end of the day, they've complained in the hearing of the Lord, and how does God feel about that? Right, he's angry. And so God ends up supplying this fire that consumes some of the outlying parts of this camp. Now remember, God's camped in the middle. The people are positioned in very specific ways around that. And apparently this fire eats up some of the people and some of the camp kind of on the periphery, the edges, right? And so if you're walking away from Numbers chapter 11, just verses 1 through 3, there's a couple basic lessons that you learn if you learn nothing else up to this point in Numbers, right? The people perceive misfortunes, and when they complain to God, God is not pleased with that complaint. And you have to ask yourself why. Well, maybe they're forgetting, right, how God has taken care of them. Maybe they're forgetting all of the fortunes God has actually allowed them literally to come out of Egypt with. They came out with jewelry and gold and money. People basically paid them to leave. They have sandals that are not wearing out. They have food. And so when God hears this complaint, he's not pleased with it. So that's a little bit of a backdrop because actually what I want to spend time talking about is verse 4 on. But the beginning of chapter 11 starts with that really quickly. In three verses, that happens. You're going to see why that's important as you move on through Numbers chapter 11. Um, And so listen to this. I think this was as good as any way as I've heard of summing up everything that had happened to Israel up to Numbers 11. Israel, having been ordered, organized, cleansed, separated, blessed, 
taught how to give, reminded of God's deliverance, given God's presence and the tools to advance to the promised land, is now on the march to Canaan, and immediately the people complained. Doesn't that kind of sum up everything that's happened up to this point? If you are familiar with the story, you'll see how appropriate that kind of summary is. And so keep that in mind as we move forward into verse 4. So I'd like to read verses 4 to 10 now, so let's read these together. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Yours may say greedy desire or something like that. Had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it into hand mills or beat it into mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna with it. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. When you look at these verses, I guess verses 4 through 6 kind of sum it up there, right? But in verse 4, what is driving the people? Now keep in mind verses 1 through 3, they had kind of a very immediate displeasing, not pleasurable experience with complaining and bringing that to God about how they have misfortunes, right? And now you could say another misfortune is perceived here, isn't that that they don't have meat to eat, but what they do have is manna. Now, if you recall earlier in the book of Numbers, God had begun providing this manna miraculously from heaven so that they would have something to eat without even really having to work for it. Like they would just go out and get it right? And so how long has it taken this blessing to become a curse to them, you know? Um, I don't know exactly how much time has elapsed. Perhaps as much as a year, maybe this is going on for the whole year. I don't think that's the case, but at most a few months, maybe even realistically. And this blessing that initially was perceived as such a great thing has become tiresome and boring to them. Isn't that how we work sometimes? Like the God, God does something amazing for us or provides us with something, but the more familiar we are with it, the less impressive it is. And so we kind of like, God, give me this thing next, right? And that's really what the people are doing. And God sums it up. His commentary on this is in verse 4 that they had a strong craving. I'm going to suggest to you that this is actually a negative thing for God to say. Some of your translations render this actually like a greedy desire, and I think that's really the idea. They had a greedy craving or a greedy desire within them that pushes them to say, if only we had had meat. If only we had garlic and onions and fish and all this stuff that we didn't have to pay for, right? Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I, I'm imagining that that's not totally true. Um, but when you look at this desire, this strong craving what does this strong craving lead them, lead them to do, this greedy desire? Well, it leads them, every single person, it seems like this text says, is weeping in their tents. And in this text, it says, 
they weep and they're saying this stuff. And then in verse 10, Moses hears the weeping, right? And the anger of the Lord blazes hotly and Moses is displeased. I'm going to suggest to you here in this text, through Numbers 11, what we're seeing in this story is that greedy cravings, desirous cravings, strong cravings that we allow ourselves to be led by is not something that we should do. And I think that's really the lesson of Numbers 11. Whatever greedy craving that you may have needs to be satisfied with what God has already given. And I think that's the lesson of Numbers 11. And we're going to elaborate on that and talk about it some more as we keep going through this. But I think the people of Israel are going to have to learn this lesson. In fact, they end up, as we get to the end of this chapter, having to learn it kind of the hard way, just like verses 1 through 3. But they have a greedy craving. They start weeping about it. What does that produce in the leadership? How does that make the leadership feel? You know, Moses is trying to lead them in the best way that he knows how, in the, the most godly way that he knows how. And when he sees the people doing this, he's displeased. I think that's a lesson. When we pursue greedy desires in such a way that it drives us and actually changes our action and our hearts and our minds and what we're pursuing, the leadership is going to suffer. They're going to be displeased. We have godly leaders. Don't expect them to be pleased when you desire something greedy or sinful. The second thing is, how does the Lord, and more importantly, how does the Lord feel about this? When we have greedy desires and we chase after them and we long for them and we weep for them, this text is showing me that God's feeling on that is that he's angry. And it's as if he's like burning hotly, right? But that language certainly reminds me of verses 1 through 3. Because when the anger of the Lord burns hotly, right, he sends fire that burns, burns people up. And so if I'm going to pursue greedy desire, that's not something I'd encourage anyone here to do, but if that's something that you are going to pursue, something that's greedy and you're going to let it drive you and you're going to weep for it and want it, then you should have no expectation other than the Lord is going to be angry. And perhaps verses 1 through 3 might happen. And we're going to see how this plays out here. I think this reveals several major flaws, or a few major flaws, in the character of the people here, the Israelites. One, I'm going to suggest to you, is that they have selective memory. Um, they remember the food they ate in Egypt, but they don't remember the cost with which they were able to eat it. They were slaves. Right? But they do remember those pots of meat and the, the fish and the cucumbers, right? They have selective memory. Don't we struggle with that too sometimes? Like if I'm going to be a follower of God, sometimes I'm tempted to remember the good things about how it was before I was a Christian. I got to do whatever I wanted to do. And I had all these friends and I didn't have to worry about what was right and wrong. And we forget the mess that pushed us to become a Christian in the first place. All the trouble that I brought on myself, all the guilt that I felt, Right? Not having purpose or direction. Not, being, um, not having friends and a company that are useful to me and helpful and encouraging to me. That's what Israel's doing. We had meat there, but there's no mention of how they were slaves. They don't remember. Selective memory, right? Another flaw I think I see in the people here is that fundamentally their desires were greedy. They were selfish people. Um, don't we struggle with that too sometimes? I know for myself, 
that I desire a lot of different things. Some of them are more noble-minded than others, but I definitely have things that are more selfish that I desire. The question for me is not whether that's going to happen, because it happens. I'm a person. Am I going to let it lead me like the people of Israel did? Is it going to be the defining thing that I follow? The thing that I want, is it going to dictate my actions in a way that it discerns or determines how I act? Am I going to weep? and pursue and complain until my desire is filled? Or am I going to acknowledge that that's something selfish, which is what we wish the people in this lesson did and said, yeah, we want meat, but maybe they should have said, but we're thankful for the manna God has provided us. I don't think any of us would have seen a problem in that acknowledgement there. I don't think the Lord would have seen a problem in that honesty. In fact, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move forward. They wanted to have, in verse 5, everything that was good from Egypt. But did you notice they wanted it at no cost? When they were remembering the food that they ate, what was like the defining characteristic of that? It was free. right? You can tell that the desire of these people is selfish because they wanted things that didn't cost them anything. We remember Egypt, not because we were slaves, but that food that we ate, we didn't have to pay for it. right? And that might be an indicator for us, right? If my desire is selfish, usually I'm focused on what that thing will do or mean to me and not how it will help others or be useful to others or God or anything like that. And lastly, I think a major flaw here is that they allowed their cravings to rule them, which we've already highlighted. So they have selective memory, they have greedy desire, and that desire is ruling them, right? And so in this, in this first 10 verses, we're seeing these flaws of the people. Um, why I wanted James to read Philippians 3 is because I think Paul talks about some of this. In fact, if uh, you held on to that, you probably didn't. You can listen as I read these verses, or if you would prefer to turn to Philippians 3 and read it for yourself, I want to read a couple of those verses again. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and verse 19. Philippians 3, 18 and 19, it says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What we're seeing in Israel in Numbers 11 is exactly what Paul warns Christians thousands of years later about. If your God is your belly, right, what does that amount in for you? What does that amount to for you? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. says, their end is destruction, right? And so without explicitly ruining the story, in Numbers 11, if the people stay as if their belly is their God, we know what God is going to have to do with that. Right? It's going to have to destroy them. And so Paul is encouraging us, his application is not to be like the Israelites were in Numbers 11. Don't let your belly be your God. Don't glory in the things that are shameful for you, like being greedy, because that will end in your destruction. Their minds were set on earthly things, weren't they? They weren't set on the manna from heaven. They were set on the meat from Egypt. All right, so let's go back to Numbers chapter 11. And let's look at how Moses and the Lord kind of 
respond to not only the Israelites, but also as they discuss this, they kind of have a give and take amongst themselves. So let's read verses 11 through 22 here. So it's another longer reading. 11 through 22. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you'll treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. And you shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you've rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Where, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I number, I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I'll give them meat that they eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses goes to God, which is a credit to him because he knows who can give him insight. He knows who can handle this situation. But he certainly goes to God with a bunch of question marks, doesn't he? When you look at it in verse 12, Moses almost compares himself to someone with like children that he has like no clue how to take care of them, right? He's like, am I, you know, like a nurse with a nursing child? And am I supposed to carry these children all the way to the land that you, you said you'd bring them to? Right? In fact, as he continues on from verse 12, he actually says, even where am I going to get enough meat to take care of? Where am I going to get meat? And where am I going to get enough to like feed these people? Right? I mean, just so many questions. Moses was displeased at the complaints of the people, but also... He very obviously didn't have good answers for them, right? And he takes that to God. I think we need to acknowledge the credit that Moses deserves in one, being trying to be a good leader for the people, and obviously he knew to go to God with this. A little bit of a discredit to Moses is how much he doesn't understand about his position in this whole thing. And I'm not trying to be harsh on Moses, because I think certainly um, he was a great man. God used him for many things. Um, obviously God talks about him in terms of being one of the most meek or humble men on the planet. But shouldn't have Moses kind of known like the answer to some of these questions? You know? Like, he's been on the road basically for a year now. He was on a mountain for a long time getting commands directly from the Lord. 
him and some of the leaders of the people had eaten a meal with the Lord on the mountain, right? He had seen the water parted. He had seen the plagues come and go. He had seen the firstborn spared by the blood of the Lamb. He had seen the manna come down every morning like dew from heaven and gathered it himself, you imagine. Why doesn't he have better answers to these questions? I think we can relate to Moses. I think when we deal with people with greedy sins and it displeases us, don't we feel like Moses sometimes, though? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to carry them to where they need to be? Right? And that's what Moses feels. But did you notice how God responds to him? Verse 16. Does he really like even start by addressing the questions Moses asked? It almost seems to me that like he doesn't even he gets there eventually, but he doesn't start with that. And I kind of asked my question, asked the question, why does God start this way? What is this whole bit in the middle of this about these 70 elders? I'm not sure I have the best answer, but I'll give you what I thought about. Moses and the people perceive a need, and they perceive that need to be meat, right? The people say, we want this. We have a strong, greedy craving. Give it to us. Moses says, man, I don't know how I'm going to give it to them. And what God says is, what you really need are more of godly leaders, you need more of my spirit. You need more people leading you in the way that you should go. I think that's what God is implying by this. You need something that is not meat. And really the point of this lesson, I think these were the verses that kind of gave me the, the clarity to kind of see the lesson in this, at least for me, is, you know, we may have strong cravings, greedy desires, and we, we can take those to the Lord and say, like, look, this is what I feel. But really what God wants to give us is what he gives Moses. Whatever greedy desire you're feeling, whatever thing that you feel pushed to pursue, if you take that to the Lord, he's going to say your real need, the thing that you should really want, and the thing that you really need in this moment is my spirit. The thing that you really need is strong leadership. You need to be able to see what I want. You need to know what I want you to do. And that's what he gives them with these 70 elders. In fact, he tells Moses... These 70 elders, you pick them out. You know which people are the leaders of this people. You go grab them. You bring them here. I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you, and I'm going to give it to them. That sort of answers how are you going to carry these people to Egypt, right? Well, you're going to have these people helping you. But what you really need is leadership. You need more spirit, less strong craving, right? In this text, after God begins to say this stuff about the 70 elders, how he's going to give them the spirit. God also says this, I have heard the complaint, right? After he talks about the 70 elders, I've heard it. And what is God going to do about it? If we really pursue God with these greedy things that we want, one lesson that I think I learned from this chapter is God's not afraid to give us that. Did you notice that? Like, you'd think he'd just be like, no, that's not what's best for you. But he's like, I'm going to give it to you, not 10 days, not 20 days. You're going to eat it for a month, and you're going to get so sick of it, it's going to be coming out your nose. God had given them a blessing with the manna. They turned it into a curse. Now they wanted a new blessing, and God makes it a curse for them. Doesn't he? Isn't that interesting how God works like that? 
He gives them what they need in the spirit, and the thing that they wish they had, he makes them wish they didn't have it. Right? I think there's judgment in that from the Lord, trying to correct us and to teach us the things that we need, just like he's trying to teach them. But there's also a mercy in that, isn't there? That God would allow us, probably through displeasure, to see that that is really not what we need. That's a mercy on his part. In our lives, the thing that we really are being selfish and greedy about, that we think that we want, God may give that to you in such a way that you realize, this is not all it's cracked up to be. I've gotten my fill of that, and I still am not satisfied. You know? I'm tired of this meat, so to speak. That's a mercy of the Lord. But it's also, right, can be a judgment at the end of whatever it is we're craving or desiring, whether it's uh, money, whether it's sex, whether it's lies, whether it's cheating people out of stuff, or whether it's living the life that I want to live versus the life that's right. I mean, whatever greedy, sinful thing that we could pursue, God is not unwilling to let you have that in the hopes that you'll realize that it's not what you need. And I think we see that in this chapter. But let's continue on as we go through this. Moses still doesn't quite get it in verse 21, right? There's 600,000 of us, men, I would assume, here in this text from other places. Are you going to, like, catch every fish in the sea and feed us? And, like, what herds are you going to be able to slaughter to feed all these people? Moses still doesn't quite get who he's talking to here. He doesn't wrap his head around the fact that God by nature is possibility, right? And so he asks these questions. And so in verse 23 is the challenge. Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. This section reveals to us, I think, some more flaws, maybe even in Moses himself. I think Moses, uh, I heard someone phrase it this way for a totally different lesson and a different topic, but I think this is a good way to think about this. I think Moses has sort of a blurry vision here. In verse 15, he says, If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. He uh, is only focusing on himself, isn't he? He's like, I don't want to see me. I don't want to see this situation I'm involved with. But Moses' problem all through this text is he's not really seeing who God is. He's not seeing the possibility of God's character and his nature and what that can mean for this situation and for his leadership, right? He has a little bit of blurry vision. Shall flocks and herds, verse 22, be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Moses, again, see, doesn't see the possibilities that God's involvement creates. I think another thing that God does in this text with that blurry vision, right, is in verse 23, like we read, he wants to clarify or reveal what Moses should really be seeing. Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Moses isn't seeing clearly, and God's challenge is, is my hand shortened? I'm going to show you, right? Sometimes we can be like Moses with blurry vision, right? We just don't see how it's going to happen. We don't see how God's going to help us lead people that are wanting bad things. 
We don't understand how God can provide for us. We get frustrated and we say, man, I'd rather just die and be with you, God. Like, I don't see it. Well, God says, is my hand too short for that? I want you to see whether I can handle this, whether I can take care of this or not. And ultimately, for us as Christians, Jesus is the clarity to that answer, isn't he? Jesus can and does take care of whatever needs or wants or desires that we have, just like Moses, as leaders, as people who need to be guiding those whose desires are not so good. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 15, it says this, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. There's an idea that God is clarifying vision, right? He's revealing something. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. God clarifies blurry vision by revealing. That's what Paul's showing us. God gives believers what they need to hold on to, right? Something that you have attained, right? In Jesus, we've all gotten something. Hope, forgiveness, purpose, clarity, right? And God tells us to hold on to that. And then lastly, Paul's reminding us that we have examples of the Lord and his people that, to help keep our vision from blurrying, right? Sometimes we get lost in the thicket of life. We get challenged by some circumstance or some person, and we start to kind of lose focus. Like maybe we had it for a while, and the vision kind of starts to get blurry again. And what Paul's encouraging the people in Philippians to do is like, hey, remember my example. Remember the example that some of us have had in the Lord. Remember Jesus himself. Remember, for us, we can remember Numbers 11, right? Don't be like the people in Numbers 11. Don't make the mistake of Moses not being able to see God and see the possibility that he introduces with his involvement. Keep our vision clarified. Hold on to what we have attained. Remember the examples we're given. Finally, let's read verses 24 through 35 here as we wrap up. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to them, and he took some of, some of the spirit that was on him, and he put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, they did not con- but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, But they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. And those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, 
The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazeroth, and they remained at Hazeroth. That name there at the end, I just kind of want to jump to it in verse 34. You may have a footnote that says this, but the name that they named this place ends up being Graves of Craving, right? Ultimately, I don't want us to lose sight of this because we get sandwiched with this Moses, elders, God discussion in the middle. But at the beginning, the people have the strong craving. They're weeping. They want it so badly. And Moses is displeased. The anger of the Lord burns hot. At the end of this, God does exactly what he says. He gives them their craving, right? But what does it do to them? The craving that they had kills them. And I think what we're supposed to get out of this is it's one thing to have a craving and to like just kind of acknowledge like, yeah, this is like a selfish thing that I want. But when it allows you to, it forces you to have selective memory, right? And when it forces you to, uh, or compels you to act in certain ways, like when you let it control you, the result of living like that is graves of craving, is death, like, that is going to kill you. Sin kills you. Greedy cravings, desires, lust, lies, uh, all the things that God talks about, um, not being sober-minded, to be drunk, right? To uh, steal, to cheat, to swear falsely, to do all these things that Jesus teaches against, right? Are desires that we could have. But I think God would look at them as greedy or sinful desires, and the lesson of this text on one hand is that those leave the graves of craving, right? Those are things that can kill us and that the Lord will judge us for. But between that, right, we have uh, some lessons that I think we learn from this. The Israelites in this text seem to have not been satisfied by the additional spirit that God gave them. This is an implication, so I want you guys to just kind of hang on to this and tell me what you think maybe afterwards. It seems as if Moses surely had discouraged them from wanting this. You just kind of have to think that at some point, because it displeased Moses, certainly it made the Lord angry. Moses had a conversation to God and heard God say that he was not happy about this, right? He was going to make it come out their nose and all this stuff that he was angry at them. Surely the conversation happened that God didn't want them to want this. That's an implication that I'm making. I just think like the odds have to be if that was clarified. So when God gives the spirit to these 70 elders and they prophesy and all the people gather at the center of the camp at the tent of meeting to see this happen, who leaves to go get the quail when it lands? You know, like God says, I'm going to send quail, and he certainly does. I have to think the people that weren't satisfied with the additional leadership that they had received, the additional spirit that God had put in the camp, because it almost seems like as soon as the quail got there, they said, there it is. There's our answer. Let's go get it, right? This is what we've been waiting for, right? This is what we really want. It says that the least of them gathered ten homers full. 
You know, I don't know exactly how much that is. I'm guessing that's a lot. Um, I'm guessing that's baskets full of whatever had come their way, these quail. Doesn't that seem greedy? Doesn't it seem like these people just really just wanted the meat? Like, at the end of the day, like, the spirit was nice. It was cool that they saw prophecy, but they were in this to see the quail drop, right? Are there some of us in this room that are kind of living that life? You know, I don't know all of you super well. I know some of you better than others. Some of you are visiting with us, and I don't know you as well. But maybe you're living a life that you have some sinful, greedy desires. And, like, while you appreciate the Spirit and you enjoy seeing, like, God working in people around you and, like, Him wanting to fill you, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, you're just waiting for that desire to be filled. Like maybe some of these Israelites were. The only thing that waits on the other side of that is a grave. And I think that's the lesson we see in Numbers 11. You have to assume that God ends up sending a plague on those who were pursuing this craving, because the graves of craving, right? Which leads me on the other side. You have to assume those that are spared from this are the people that are still in the center of the camp with the, the elders and Moses and those who received the Spirit. And so it draws an interesting contrast of here's the center of the camp, here's the spirit, here's the elders, here's Moses, and the quail's all out here, and some people leave that to go get the quail, and it kills them, right? Before they ever are really satisfied, it's in their teeth, and they die. Some of us, figuratively, are kind of on the periphery, we're like, still chasing that craving. The only thing that is on the other side of that is for is death. That sin is just going to kill us. But we're operating out there. The encouragement I see from this lesson is to be satisfied with God's teaching, to be satisfied with the spirit that he's trying to give you, to be satisfied with the leadership that he's trying to provide you. And not to just be compelled or to pursue your own greedy desires. For those of us who are doing better maybe about trying to pursue the Spirit and trying to be godly people, I would encourage you to stay there. Um, You know, for me personally, I think one of the challenges when I was reading Numbers 11 was trying to think about, like, who would I have been and who am I now? And I think the reality of who I would have been was answered by who I figured I might be now um I thought about this and I think I probably would have wanted some quail you know I like that just sounds nice like that would have been a nice pleasurable thing to have been a part of like manna's nice but like quail's nice too right but would I have been so satisfied with what was happening at the center of the camp that I wouldn't even have bothered with that right then And that's kind of the question. Are you so satisfied with what God is trying to give you in Jesus, the spiritual blessings that he's offering to you to be saved, to be forgiven, to have purpose, to live a life of meaning, to be righteous, to be a godly person who can claim that you know God, that you have a relationship with God, that you have hope in heaven with him? Is that something that is so satisfying to you that whatever cravings may crop up, You can put them aside because you are content where you are. If you're not in that place, hopefully you see the lesson of Numbers 11. And you'd see that the only thing that waits for you if you pursue that is a grave.
So I'd encourage you to consider that and think about that this morning. That, I think, is probably the big lesson I got out of Numbers 11. And I'd hope that you'd see that as well. Consider the words. Like Richard said, this is not our church's invitation to think about this stuff. This is the Spirit trying to encourage us to be the people that God wants us to be. So think about that while we're standing and singing.